Let me read from John chapter 3, and then we'll talk a little bit (coughs) about that passage and about what we're going to do the next several months. In John chapter 3, we get this story. It tells us that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, a man with some clout among his people, and he came to Jesus under the cloak of darkness to question him. I want to pause and just just to give you a little context so you can sort of um, read Nicodemus's questions and his interaction with Jesus here correctly. It tells us in this translation that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the experts in the Jewish law. They were the religious experts of their day. And when it says he was a man with some clout among his people, what we know about Nicodemus is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the elite of the elite. They were the supreme court of the religious world at that time, and we don't have an equivalent in our day, but uh, more than the Roman Empire in which a lot of uh, these folks lived, the authority for them, the human authority for them was the Sanhedrin, was the the ruling religious authorities. And so Nicodemus was highly educated. He was considered to be an expert in things involving God and humanity, okay? So that's who we have coming to Jesus under the cloak of darkness to question him. And we're told, Nicodemus says, teacher, some of us have been talking. You are obviously a teacher who has come from God. The signs you're doing are proof that God is with you. And Jesus responded and said, I tell you the truth, only someone who experiences birth for a second time can hope to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, I'm a grown man. How can someone be born again when he's old like me? Am I to crawl back into my mother's womb for a second birth? That's impossible. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If someone does not experience water and spirit birth, there's no chance he will make it into God's kingdom. Like from like. Whatever is born from flesh is flesh. Whatever is born from spirit is spirit. Don't be shocked by my words, but I tell you the truth. Even you, an educated and respected man among your people, must be reborn by the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows all around us as if it has a will of its own. We feel and hear it, but we do not understand where it has come from or where it will end up. Life in the Spirit is as if it were the wind of God. And Nicodemus said again, I still do not understand how this can be. Jesus says, your responsibility is to instruct Israel in matters of faith, but you do not comprehend the necessity of life in the Spirit. I tell you the truth. We speak about the things we know, and we give evidence about the things we have seen, and you choose to reject the truth of our witness. If you do not believe when I talk to you about ordinary earthly realities, then heavenly realities will certainly elude you. I ended, we're, we're into a series now where we're going to talk about what is distinct about Christianity, what is distinct about the faith that Jude talks about having been handed down once for all time, for all people. What is it that we believe that is unusual, that makes us distinctly Christian? And I ended that last week by asking three questions. Where are you unrooted? Where is your life and your, are your beliefs not rooted in the truth of the scripture, in the truth of the faith handed down once and for all. And then I asked the question, are you confident you'll still be on your feet when it's all over? And this was from a passage of scripture we read last week. And then how are you equipping yourself for that 
and encourage you to consider those verses from Ephesians 6 that tell us how to equip ourselves as people who follow Jesus to walk in a world where what we believe, what comprises the faith that has been handed down to us really, really matters. And um, I want to spend this week and next week exploring some of the primary questions and problems that I think we face as individuals and the, the world around us faces that sort of call for an answer. Before we get into talking, and we will, we're going to walk through kind of piece by piece some beliefs, some, some core fundamental beliefs that make up that faith that Jude talked about. But before we get into that, we're going to look at a, a few questions that I think are common to us and to all the people around us that call for an answer. And uh, what I'm going to be doing in this series, and this is something uh, I don't think I've ever done exactly the way I'm going to do it this time, but N.T. Wright has written a book called Simply Christian. And as, I, as the elders and I started talking months ago about doing this series in the fall, I started working toward this series and trying to develop a framework and the best way to approach this. And I just kept coming back to the best way I've ever seen this approached is the way that he approaches this in, in that book. And so I'm going to loosely be following kind of the, the sequence with which he approaches it some weeks. If you read the book, you may think that sounds a lot like the book. Some weeks it will sound nothing like the book. But I think the way that he approaches this is really helpful. And so I want to approach it that way um, and ask some of these questions. And uh, I was reminded of sort of this scale of kind of the bigness of these questions and, and how trivial they seem at times today. Um, when, when Josh plans a set list out for the week for the songs that we're going to sing on Sunday, he sends that to some of us, the folks in the band, and I get it. And I try to uh, put that, that a little playlist together to listen to those songs on Sunday before I'm here. It just helps me kind of engage and connect what I've been preparing for uh, to what we're going to be doing here. And it's not uncommon, more than I would think, that there's some kind of connection that I, I wouldn't have made if I didn't do that. And um, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to tell this story because here's my confession. I, uh, I, I was raised with puritanical enough values to have a moral dilemma about whether people should stand up in front of others and tell a story that, that starts, I was in the shower because inevitably some people... Uh, are going to start picturing that. So let me just give you, um, for the sake of the next 60 seconds, uh, the faith to believe that I shower with my clothes on so that <laughs> you can walk through this story that way. But I was in the shower today, and that playlist was playing, and I had my phone uh, playing the music propped up on a little ledge outside the shower, and all of a sudden I heard it tumble uh, down. And the, uh, that, that terrifying feeling of, um, it sounded like it was there with me, but I couldn't see it. Uh, I knew it was very close to joining me in the shower if it wasn't already in the shower. And so I started trying to figure out where it was. And as I pulled the shower curtain back, it was on, right on the ledge of the tub. And it, as I pulled the curtain back, it fell into the shower with me. <clears throat> and I was um, fully clothed but covered in soap. And so there was nothing I could do about it right in that minute. And I just had to pray that it survived this episode. And so as soon as I got out, I put it in a bowl of rice like you're supposed to do. But listen, the music went from playing 
uh, normally to a lot of static and garbled. And at the time, I was not even cognizant of what song was playing. Turned it off, put it in the bowl. And I, took, I actually left home without my phone, and Aiden chased me out of the driveway and said, did you mean, mean to leave your phone here? Um, it had only been the rice maybe an hour. You're supposed to leave it overnight, I think. But I was like, no. So he ran and brought it back to me. He handed it to me. I turned it on, hit play to see what the speakers sounded like. And not only did they sound like they sounded the first day I got my phone, but it was in the middle of the song, God of Miracles, um, <laughs> that all of this took place. <clears throat> and it, uh, it literally, the first thing I heard was nothing is impossible because um, I thought it was a goner for sure. Uh, here's the thing about that. I don't tell you that story to trivialize that song because that song is a really important song in general and it's a really important song for our community because of what we've been through. And, but it was amusing to me. And then I felt guilty that it was amusing to me that uh, I thought, it's a miracle, you know? Um, and uh, it just highlighted to me that we don't always know what to do with the things that we believe, because we believe some weird things. In theory, we believe some unusual things. So when we run into moments like that, we're tempted to laugh at them, and then maybe we feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be laughing at that. Because we live in this space where we're trying to be rooted. We're trying to make sense of the things that we believe. And the real question for me is not do I, when, when I sing the words, nothing is impossible, do I believe that God can heal an iPhone? The real question is do I believe that he's going to heal us individually and as a people, a very unhealed world that we live in? And so I want us to wrestle with these questions. I want us to enter into talking about what we believe with the questions front and center because we need to know if what we believe answers those questions. And so the intent of the questions that we're going to talk about this week and next, uh, I want to say this about. And I wrote it down because it felt like the kind of thing uh, that we should remember. I want to remind you that you and people around you are perpetually asking questions and facing very real human issues for which the faith handed down once for all has answers. My hope is engaging with those questions helps us enter into the weeks of describing the unique truths of Christianity with our eyes wide open for answers to those questions and problems. It's really important to me, as I said last week, that you don't get just a list of things to believe, but that we're talking about real faith handed down once and for all that deals with us and that deals with our brokenness, and that deals with the brokenness of the world around us. So the primary question I want to talk about today is, what are we as, as humans? And I want you to, to, to sort of walk through this question with me from a couple of different perspectives and not just immediately load it down with all the things that you would already say if you were given a Sunday school test about this question. But what are we as humans supposed to do with the spiritual thirst that exists in every human, that exists in every man and woman and child. What do we do with that spiritual longing? Because as I will talk about, and as I'm convinced, it's there. And it's there and it's real for every single person. You might not know it because the dominant American culture, we looked at kind of the, 
the, the movement of our culture from a Christian, sort of Christian-ish culture to a post-Christian culture in some statistical ways last week. But specifically, when we start talking about does everyone actually have this spiritual thirst, one of the things that's misleading about whether or not that's true is that people don't talk about it, except in extreme situations. For the most part, people don't talk about it. The dominant American culture encourages us to redirect our spiritual thirst toward materialism and all sorts of concrete, logical things that we would we should take in to satisfy whatever our longings are. So it gets redirected from a spiritual thirst to just do these other things. And mm, let's don't talk about the fact that you believe that weird thing about God. There are other answers out there for you. And it's working. It's making us skeptical. It's making us embarrassed to talk about our faith. I'm 43 years old. I'm a preacher's kid. I've been in the church my whole life, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone stand up here and try to convince me not to be embarrassed to go out and talk about my faith. Why? Why are we being encouraged to suppress the spiritual part of who we are? But we are, and it's working. A, a very recent poll, you may have seen, there was an article this just the last couple of days that this came out of, the Barna Research Group did this study, but more than three quarters of Americans don't regularly have spiritual conversations. Over 75% of the population doesn't regularly talk in any way about spiritual things. More than 20% say they have had no spiritual conversations in the last year. And only 7% of the population says they have spiritual conversations regularly. And, and, and my memory is, I didn't write it down, but my memory is that regularly meant more than two or three times a year. We spend so much time, even within the church, and I'll talk about the, sort of the dominant church culture and the impact of that in a minute, but we, spent so, we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves that it's okay to acknowledge that there's a spiritual part to us and that it's longing, and that it's looking for things. And what one of the dynamics that I see happening is a lot of us who want to not be obnoxious, which is an okay thing to not want to be, end up in that struggle, uh, how do I talk about this, and maybe I don't ever talk about this, and the people for whom it's easy to talk about their faith, not all of them, but many of them, um, who kind of are wired in an opposite way and aren't timid or shy, don't end up actually speaking to spiritual things in them or spiritual things in other people, but instead they're defending some sort of, some sort of cultural notion of their religion. They're defending what's comfortable and familiar to them. And there's a defense of a lot of our outspoken from the church, a lot of what we have done to talk about, what we could, would call talking about spiritual things, ends up being a defensive posture instead of, hey, I'm, I am spilling over with a fountain of living water and I want to share it with you. That's broken, that that's where we are. But it is where we are. The culture, the world around us is trying to enable and even encourage people to deaden that part of themselves, that spiritual part of themselves, and we set things up so that we won't have to deal with religious interference if we want to go about our lives without having to deal with it. 
We want to see those things kind of tucked into a corner of the world where they will stay neatly in their place and not get in our way. And the, the mainstream of this, the main redirection of this um, is a, a redirection from tapping into a spiritual source other than yourself. So that part of us that's inclined to that, that, that recognizes I have a spiritual part of me and it is reaching for something other than what I already have. We redirect that to make ourselves the source. So our, our, our sort of spiritual thirst gets redirected internally and says, you have whatever you need inside of yourself. So we exalt self-discovery. We exaggerate our own power as individuals. We insist that, hey, you're a sovereign being. You're the captain of your own soul. Only what you think about you matters. It doesn't matter what anybody or anything outside of you thinks of you. Only what you think about yourself matters. And this, this can't stand up. Even Set aside Christianity for a second. <laughs> this way of thinking runs broadside into all kinds of other things that we discover are intuitively true. And, and the most obvious is that people prioritizing themselves do tremendous damage to others. So we have this concurrent message of, hey, you're the captain of your own soul. Do your thing. Speak your truth. Be your own whatever. And then we discover that people that follow that advice are hurtful. <laughs> they damage the creation. They damage other people. It can't stand that counsel of what we're supposed to do with our spiritual longings can't stand even on its own. But we, we love it. We love to be told that things are about us. And being a Christian doesn't make you immune to this. But certainly without some sort of root, without some sort of spiritual source, why wouldn't you receive the counsel that, hey, just, you just be you. I saw a poll when I was preparing for last week. I saw a poll that asked people what it is that makes America great. Um, and the number one answer to that question was the opportunity to become who you want to be is what makes America great. It was ahead of the Constitution. It was ahead of free speech. It was ahead of freedom of religion, democracy, and all those other things. The opportunity to become who you want to be. Now, I know there's a lot loaded into that. I know living in a country where you don't have the opportunity to be who you want to be lives bleak. It sounds bleak. But newsflash, millions of Christians in the world uh, live joyfully without the opportunity to be who they want to be in the way that we mean that as Americans. It just reveals, I think, even further, we want to be able to follow our own desires. We don't want any inter outside interference in that. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it, that allows us to deaden the thing inside of us that keeps rising up to remind us there has to be more than this. It allows us to deaden our spiritual instincts. So we live in that cycle over and over. We pursue what we want, whether that's money or food or sex or pleasure of some other kind or work or self-fulfillment, whatever that is, but we ultimately discover that there's something in us that knows that I'm only gonna be truly alive if I acknowledge and attend to the thirst in my spirit for something outside of myself. 
And we see that play out in our own stories. We could probably all tell some version of that story. We see it play out in the lives of people we care about who chase things that ultimately lead to emptiness. And we see it, gosh, every day in the news in the lives of famous people who have everything on this scale of fulfill yourself with the things of the world and who end up cratering in on themselves. Galatians 6 talks about this. Paul writes, those who sow seeds into the flesh will only harvest destruction from their sinful nature, but those who sow seeds into the spirit shall harvest everlasting life from the spirit. Even when we run from it and we're prone to run from it, we, we know this. We intuitively know something in us insists there's more than me pursuing my own agenda. And even the people who refuse to acknowledge that uh, in any sort of major life-changing way, refuse to acknowledge that that's probably true, often have moments when they bump in to that part of their spirit that lunges out for something. You see occasionally these stories of avowed atheists or unbelievers having these encounters, going to church or going to a funeral in a church, having these encounters with faith or religious experiences that haunt them, and then they say these, these really earth-shattering things like it's almost as if there was an intangible force in the room. And so that were a shocking new discovery. And I see it more, and, and I don't know if this is true for you, but as I age, I see friends and family who have either rejected the faith altogether or who have continually sort of pushed it out of their lives in any sort of practical way. As life comes at them and as life gets difficult, I see in those moments when, when everything gets thin, when all of the excess gets scraped away, I see something in their spirit reach out and say, surely there's something more. And as we'll see as we move through this series, I think, this faith that was handed down once and for all insists that all of that is evidence of the need for something without, for something that's not already in us to save us. We're so marked by the brokenness in the world, by evil and by self-interest that we just can't, no matter how hard we try, redeem ourselves. We can't save us. We can't redeem our own experience, much less imagine a truer, deeper redemption of the world by our own power. Not because we're not trying. We are trying. That's part of the evidence that it ain't happening. And I think one of the other pieces of evidence, just an aside here, um, this was actually the second part of the sermon that I cut out because it was too long. You're welcome. Um, but I wanna, I wanna briefly say that one of the other pieces of evidence here that, that is related and that Wright writes about in the book is we experience our deepest joys and our most excruciating griefs in human relationships. We are made for human relationships. We intuitively know it, but they are impossibly hard to keep steady and stable and to keep, even in our best, our best, deepest relationships, to keep ourselves from experiencing enormous grief and pain. Our immense futility and frustration 
uh, to see this lived out, I think, is its own kind of evidence that says there has to be something outside of me. We're constantly running in, even with people we love very deeply and who love us very deeply, to limits. And it begs a question, why does that disappoint us so much? Why are we so saddened and so disappointed by relational breakdowns? Why doesn't, when we hit those moments, why doesn't it lead us to conclude happily that we're better off alone without the hassle of trying to be healthily connected to others? And I'm not talking about if you're an introvert or if you kind of have that voice in your head that says, I would be better off if everybody just left me alone. I'm talking about why doesn't it take even those that have that voice completely down the road of saying, this is just too hard. So I will just go out on my own. It's that we know we were made for something else. It's in us. We were made for it. In our spirits, we know that relational failure, whether in personal relationships or systemic relational failure, the breakdown of our sort of societal relationships is short of something more. It's short of what we were made for, of our created purpose. But those failures are real, and they are part of the bigger system of brokenness and failures around us. And all of that generates questions for us, and it demands, those questions demand answers that ultimately have to come outside of our own power and our own resources. And that's, that's one of the main objections to the faith as the answer to spiritual longing. Most people, you can get them all the way down this road eventually to say, yeah, there's a spiritual part of people, and it's reaching out for something. But, but they will find all sorts of other places to say, if we will just do this, if we will just be kinder, if we will just love better. And my response is, look around. How's the great experiment to just make things better with kindness and love going? How is it in the greatest country on the earth with the best form of self-governance, with the beloved free market, with the deeper enlightenment we've gained in so many ways, with the scientific revolution, with all of our medical knowledge, with all of our technology, with all of our money, how's it going? Are we better people? Are we a better society? Are we well on our way to joining together to repair the cracks inside of our own souls? Does it seem like we're well on our way to healing the divisions between people? Does it seem like marshalling all of our kindness and our resources is getting us there? It ain't coming without some sort of external redemption and healing. And at some point or another, I believe everyone knows they need that. Their spirit is crying out for something else. And Jesus knew it too. In fact, he ultimately answers Nicodemus' searching with this very familiar passage, which you may not know is part of this Nicodemus story. Jesus says, for God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Here's the point. God didn't send his son into the world to judge it. Instead, he is here to rescue a world headed towards certain destruction. 
The culture pushes back and says, redirect your spiritual thirst over here. And the church, just quickly before I'm done, hasn't always done a whole lot better, hasn't always gotten this right either, and I think that's embodied in this story. Here we have Nicodemus, who represents the best of spiritual understanding in his time, and he is secretly coming to Jesus under the cloak of darkness, because he knows that the religious establishment isn't interested in him actually asking questions, wanting answers, which is, I think, what we get here from Nicodemus, which is different than most of the questioning that Jesus gets from the Pharisees, which is intended to sort of lead him to his ultimate demise. I think Nicodemus is really looking for answers. And so he quietly, outside of the view of the the religious establishment, comes to him and says, something in my spirit when you speak says yes, but doesn't fit my grid. And the dominant religious culture tends to tame and encase our spiritual hunger. To address it with rules, to sort of acquiesce to the cultural suggestion that we keep our religious stuff over here and let people live their lives out here and not, not have their religious conviction affect these other parts of their lives. In fact, that same study I'll add this number to that. Only 13% of practicing Christians who attend church regularly say they have spiritual conversations around once a week. It blows my mind. So when the church gets to this point that we don't even know how to talk to people and empower people to see that spiritual part of them vibrant and alive, here's one of the the last consequences that I'll mention. The world is full of people waking up to the fact that that there is a spiritual part of them. They've been told it's not true, it's not there, you can satisfy yourself. But they wake up and they realize, no, 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 I'm a spiritual being. And when the church doesn't have good answers, when the church isn't prepared to give life in this area, they're going to grab onto all sorts of other spiritual answers. They've been starved of water, so they're going to end up drinking anything if they find a spiritually languishing, languishing religious option. They're going to pursue some other kind of spiritualism. And that's not primarily because the gospel doesn't speak to the spiritual hunger of human beings. It's because starving human beings are finding a pared-down gospel that's too contained and too confined that it often doesn't feel like good news, much less that it will fill the deep spiritual hungers and experiences that they have. So hear me, when that happens, when people are coming with their spiritual thirst, and what they get from the church is something feeble and less than, it's not the gospel's fault. (laughs) It's not the good news of Jesus that they've encountered and found it wanting. It's not that the faith handed down once for all, is lacking. It's that they found some religious derivative that has lost its true power in life. It has lost the power in life of this is the faith. Listen, it has lost this. We have a spirit that is a God that breathes life into our spirit. And it does that because it's fully empowered by a God who became human who died, physically died, then broke the shackles of death by by a bodily resurrection, and in returning to his 
divine home, left this, in this space his actual living spirit to resurrect and live in and live through us. There's nothing lacking for the spiritual thirst of people in that. The question is, is that the faith that we have? Is that the faith that we know and live? So I want to leave us tonight with these three questions as we move into talking about the faith. Do you have a grasp on the ways the faith handed down once for all answers and deals with the deep, ongoing questions and problems of your life? And I don't mean, is it easy for you to actualize all that? I'm just asking, do you have a a clear-headed sense that this faith that we claim really does deal with the hardest parts of, of your life. And then, do you have that kind of faith for the people around you and the ability to articulate that to them? And then when you look at the shared life of our communities, of our country and our world, do you have that understanding of what the faith handed down once for all has to say? to where we find ourselves as a people? And can you speak about those things? I think that we as Christians, I think our religious systems, I think our churches need a savior and a new engagement with the true story of God's presence among us, God's true presence in our spirits, and his real presence in, and his vitality in working in us and working through us for our healing and thriving and for the healing and thriving of the world. We need a new encounter with that. Because if that's not the faith that, that we have our hands on, what are we doing? But I think that's the faith. The psalmist said this about God, you have the fountain of life that quenches our thirst. Your light has opened our eyes and awakened our souls. Let's pray.